everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here. I'm your host, Katie Helper, and we have a great show for you today. We have joining us the very esteemed, prolific scholar, Therese Berdenstelli. Very excited to talk to her about so many things, about politics, about capitalism, about racism, anti-communism, imperialism, hegemony, political economy, Black August, so many things. Someone wrote, oh shit, Dr. CBS is like a young Gerald Horn, which is high praise. Dr. Horn has been on the show before and he is a gem. So guys, if you're excited, please remember to share the stream. And to do that, you just share it. You just take the link and you put it on Facebook, Twitter, wherever, you, whatever you use. What's the Trump one? True, true, truthful. What is it? True daily. Someone tell me what, what's it called? Brad, Josh, do you remember? I'm kind of proud that no one here remembers it. Truth social. Truth social. Okay, thank you, Brad. Truth social. And thank you, Brian. Truth social. Yeah. So if you're here, uh, make sure you put on your truth social. Make sure you subscribe on Patreon if you can. Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. What you're getting, you can look forward to is an interview with Roger Waters and an interview with Mark Ames, which I keep promising, but Brad had to clean up the audio from that. So we finally have it cleaned up. You can also join us on YouTube. You can become YouTube members and you get special emojis and Bodhi emojis and badges. So that's really cool. So we're going to start the show. And as people probably know, I start the show, we go over some stories and some headlines, and then we're going to bring on our wonderful guest. So I'm going to bring on, though, someone who's been on the show, I think, once before. He's part of the brains behind this operation. Brad is the beauty I'm the brawn, and Josh Bregman is the brain. So let's welcome in Josh. Hi, Josh. Hey, how's it going? Nice to be here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to go over some headlines, some videos, but first, can you update people about this story? It's a meta story about Ukraine. Not meta as in Facebook, but it's a meta story about a story, but about a CBS story on Ukraine. Yeah, so this just came out uh, yesterday, I believe. CBS Duran uh, did an investigative piece on Ukraine and the weapons that the United States is sending over there and where they're going. And looking into it, they found that uh, something about like around 30% of them are unaccounted for. And like, they just don't know where they go after they get off the truck or the boat or where, however they get there. So they aired it and then they got complaints from the Ukrainian government and they pulled it saying that they had additional information to add that and they were revising it, but it is currently not up. So yeah, apparently if you're critical of the Ukrainian government, Amnesty International also tweeted something a couple of days ago that Ukrainian army or the government is suspected of war crimes or human rights abuses, something like that, and uh, got, got a, a whole lot of vitriol online for that one. So Apparently it was only 30% were accounted for, 70% are unaccounted for. Right, okay. Wow. Even worse than we thought. You were just trying to be charitable to the other side. Yes, a bit of the doubt, but yeah. 
who knows knowing who knows if they're getting into the i think it was they weren't getting into the hands of the soldiers maybe getting sold to other people maybe just sitting in a warehouse somewhere who knows now cbs is not to be confused with dr cbs our our guest don't get it twisted guys CBS is less credentialed than Dr. CBS. Yeah, much less credentialed. I like the idea that CBS got additional reporting. It's like, dear CBS, I'm in hands of a very responsible member of Ukrainian army. <laughs> like they tracked down the weapons. Yeah. Oh, we just found some. Yeah. Yeah. They got a letter in the first person from an actual weapon <laughs> telling CBS telling the network where they were. Yeah. All right, well, that's scary. That's really quite insane. And shout out, by the way, to Lindsay Snell, who's a great journalist. We had her on Useful Idiots last week. I'm going to have her on this show soon because she's coming out with another report and she actually did some reporting on the ground in Ukraine. And she also talked about how the corruption and the theft of weapons, both within Ukraine and on their way to Ukraine, was just something that even these foreign soldiers she was talking to, because she basically spoke to a lot of people coming from other countries to Ukraine, they were all very aware of that. There was no real controversy over it. And these are people who are fighting on the Ukrainian side. So, Brad, sure, show us that amnesty tweet. Brad is, is telling us he can show the amnesty tweet. Let's see. Ukrainian forces have put civilians in harm's way. By establishing bases and operating weapon systems in populated residential areas, such tactics violate international humanitarian law and endanger civilians, so they turn civilian objects into military targets. So, guys, just so you know, so you can keep track, it turns out Amnesty International is not only anti-Semitic, but it must be Putinist. And of course, I'm saying that because people call Amnesty International anti-Semitic for just acknowledging that there is apartheid in Israel. Something that B'Tselem, the Israeli human rights organization focusing on the occupation, acknowledges as well. So you're either an anti-Semite or a self-loathing Jew. One of the two, obviously. Let's take a look at a tweet from friend of the show, Larry Summers. Let's talk about this bill. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on, Josh, is because you're much wonkier than I am. So where are we in this bill? Should we start by looking at what Lawrence said, or do you want to set it up before we look at Lawrence's tweet? I guess I could set up Lawrence's tweet. Yeah, so the bill was passed. Uh, there was a last-minute voterama. So they, with these reconciliation bills, they they have they have a process that takes all day, and people can propose and vote on amendments and add and retract things. So Senator Thune and Senator Cinema added a private equity giveaway that was apparently so egregious that Larry Summers felt the need to tweet about it. Larry Summers, not exactly friend of the working man. Yeah. Okay, so he goes, I am pretty cynical and hardly anti-business in general or private equity in particular, but I'm appalled by the end stages of the Senate bill's passage. There is no legitimate public policy argument for the maintenance of carried interest or Senator John Thune slash cinema's private equity carve out from the bill. It makes me despair of the general interest above the special interest. For the rest of 2022, any private equity leaders purporting to speak about how private equity is or should be socially responsible should be asked what their firm has done directly or indirectly to support the loopholes here. Even more important in dollar terms is the successes of corporate lobbyists in maintaining favorable treatment for tax havens in the Caribbean and every continent by gutting the enabling legislation for U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen's international tax agreement. All right. Yeah. You know your uh, corporate giveaway when Larry Summers is upset about you, when Larry Summers thinks that it's too favorable to the uber wealthy. Yeah, it's just, I mean, that's how epically egregious it was. So it'll be really interesting to find out 
once Senator Cinema decides not to run again, which seems very likely, where she ends up and we can actually find out who, who paid for all that. Where she's a lobbyist? Yeah. That would be a good bingo game. Yeah, and we'll kind of know. We'll have a good sort of, it'll be like a good price signal, as they say, and in economics, we'll know what, what senators cost these days. What the, with inflation, it's hard to keep up, you know, so. All right. Well, let's go to another. Wow. I can't believe how bad this bill is when this person is slamming it. Let's go to our next clip, which is from MSNBC. This is from Stephanie Rule, who, by the way, worked in hedge fund sales and who's someone we've gone after on the show because she's very anti-Bernie. And she, just to remind people, was upset when Joe Biden said that this race was going to be Scranton versus Park Avenue. And she was upset that he said that, which was so clearly just a pandering line. Like he said behind closed doors, which is where you say the things that are true and nothing would fundamentally change. But she was just offended that he would even pander to people. She's like, don't you want my vote? Because guess what? I live pretty close to Park Avenue. You know who lives pretty close to Park Avenue? This guy. Yeah. (laughs) It was so amazing. So that's how out of touch she is. This idea that we didn't know, you know, uh, Kirsten Cinema, you know, uh, she wasn't showing her hand. She was. We knew exactly where her hand was in the pocket of private equity giants. I I have to make this point. The fact that the carried interest loophole is has been removed from this, that they're not closing it is such a stain on, on this huge achievement for Democrats, because keeping that loophole in our tax code is truly a giveaway for the richest of the rich. And the fact that Kirsten Sinema was so insistent on doing it really is a bad look because it serves absolutely no one in the state of Arizona. And besides people across the country celebrating who need help, working families who need help, they'll be thrilled to see this passed. The only people who were celebrating carried interest last night were private equity billionaires on mega yachts in the Mediterranean. It's crazy. And you can talk to people on both sides of the aisle who are saying, I cannot believe this happened again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is insane, Steph. The system is rigged for them. Warren Buffett's been saying it uh, for at least a decade uh, that that this allows uh, some of the richest people in America um, who make money by by pushing paper uh, or wiring numbers, uh, they will pay a lower uh, income tax rate than than their clerical workers, secretaries, other people. It is really outrageous. Stephanie Rule, thank you so much. Wow. What is happening? What twilight zone have we entered into? This is a big moment for me personally. I have to, I, maybe I should just confess this on the show. That's the first 120 seconds of Morning Joe that I don't disagree with at all. Not even one phrase of it. That feels very weird. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I feel like there's some ulterior motive going on that I can't, can't quite put my finger on. It's so crazy. I mean, to be fair, maybe this is just so that they condemn this, but then they embrace other things that aren't quite as overtly evil. So now, and we're helping rehabilitate them. Right. Guys, we're not doing that. This is their token good thing. Yeah, they're still on notice. They're still on the shit list. Again, we're not pointing out how good they are. We're pointing out how bad the bill is. And some breaking news from Phantom Asfanta. It is important to note passing of Motown music innovator Lamont Dozier. Supremes, Four Tops, Temptations, Marvin, Miracles, and List of Standards that Holland Dozier Holland created is enormous. True. So RIP. Thank you, Phantom Asfanta, for letting us know about that. Also, Olivia Newton-John died at 73. That's kind of young-ish. 
for all the exercise she did, as we know from that song, Let's Get Physical. Yeah, maybe too physical. Too soon, Josh. Too soon, too physical, too soon. My bad. No, it's okay. She died of breast cancer. I actually think she fought it for many decades. Okay. Anyway, I grew up watching Grease until my parents made me stop watching it because I asked them what a rubber was. Uh Uh-oh. Because Rizzo says that the rubber broke. Right. And that was a little too soon. I was like five years old when I was watching that. What was the movie she did with Travolta where he was a fitness instructor? Perfect. I think it was called Perfect. Was Jamie Lee Curtis in that too? Possibly. So very sad. R.I.P. R.I.P. to both of them. Um, So let's see. Where Pilgrim writes, they may be anticipating a backlash once people learn about the details of the bill, so they're offering a bone of criticism to get ahead of it. Maybe. Yeah, possible. Or it's something to temper their fanfare of calling it historic and lauding what a massive achievement it is. Seems to be the line that's going out. I mean, that's really, I think, the more problematic issue with the whole thing. I mean, the the carried interest thing, as they said in that clip, is just gets passed year after year and nobody ever seems to do anything about it. Shocking. But do, do you want to get into the broader stuff now or should we? Sure. I mean, I just feel like the broader thing is that it's unlikely to in- reduce inflation. It's unlikely to reduce emissions. You can find different analyses of this online from credible people. And a lot of the provisions of the bill won't go into effect until after the 24 elections. So the politics of it are that people are enduring inflation now, and it's a good issue for the Republicans and a bad one for the Democrats. And the Democrats are claiming to reduce it with this bill. And by the time people get into the voting booth, they won't have felt any reduction, at least as the result of this bill. And they'll vote accordingly. And then probably they'll vote against Democrats. And then the Democrats will throw their hands in the air and say, what all these ignorant people voting against us? And they'll blame everyone on the left for being critical of it. And then we just do this incredibly boring thing we've been doing for the last decade where, you know, the Democrats take one step to the left of the Republicans, pass something that makes no tangible difference in anyone's real lived life. And you have to be immersed in the New York Times to actually believe that this is a historic transformative bill. The Republicans get in power and will almost certainly repeal every single provision of it before it even goes into effect. So, yay. Good times. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. It's a sad prediction, but I think it's probably going to turn out to be true. Right. So, you know, some of the people who are not big fans of this bill, you know, who among them is, of course, friend of show, Bernard Sanders. Let's take a look at what he said. But Mr. President, the bad news is that this bill, as currently written, includes a huge giveaway to the fossil fuel industry, both in the reconciliation bill that we are considering and in a side deal that was just made public a few days ago. Mr. President, under this legislation, the fossil fuel industry will receive billions of dollars in new tax breaks and subsidies over the next 10 years, on top of the 15 billion in tax breaks and corporate welfare that they already receive every year. And interestingly enough, Mr. President, that may well be the reason why BP, one of the largest oil companies in the world, supports this bill. It may be the reason why 
Shell, another huge oil company, supports this bill. And it is the reason, I suspect, why the CEO of ExxonMobil is pleased by many of the provisions included in this deal. So we've got to think a little bit about what it means when major oil companies who are in the process of destroying the planet support this legislation. Under this bill, up to 60 million acres of public waters must be offered up for sale each and every year to the oil and gas industry before, before the federal government approves any new offshore wind development. To put that in perspective, 60 million acres is the size of the state of Michigan. Further, under this bill, up to 2 million acres of public lands must be offered up for sale each and every year to the oil and gas industry before leases can move forward for any renewable energy development on public lands. In total, this bill will offer the fossil fuel industry up to 700 million acres of public lands and waters to oil and gas drilling over the next decade, far more than the oil and gas industry could possibly use. Not surprisingly, Bernie got a lot of crap from both sides, from people on the right who were saying, this is why everyone hates Bernie, and then from people on the left who were like, well, then why did you vote for it? So what say you? I mean, you know, he's just offering some criticisms. He offered quite a lot of amendments that everyone yelled at him for offering and voted promptly voted down on the argument that he was obstructing the process and creating opportunities for division even though he was offering things that people had already said they supported, like the child tax credit. And they all voted for Thune's amendment, which was the private equity giveaway or tax credit. So people say, yeah, he voted for it. He did. He's not going to obstruct it and blow it up like Manchin or Cinema would. And maybe that gives him less leverage. But I don't know. He's just getting it in the record, I guess. It's just kind of sad. It's sad, guys. I wish we could end this on a better note but it's sad. Just remember that it could be better. Maybe that's the point of him doing this is so that people know they should not be too happy about this. Yeah. And I think that's where the Dems flip out on him because he's basically bursting the bubble. You know, they want to present it as this big historic thing. And he's saying, yeah, it's kind of weak stuff. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Josh, for your insights and analysis. And we'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Take yeah, of course. Right. All right. Bye. Okay, we are so excited to be bringing in our special guest, Sharice Bernstelli, who is an associate professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University and the coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace Research and Political Education team. Dr. CBS, welcome. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us. I actually wanted to start off our chat with a video that I thought would be a perfect prompt for our discussion. It kind of speaks to a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about. And just to make sure everyone, I'm sure you guys all know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an FBI raid that everyone is talking about in the news constantly. I know it's on everyone's mind. So let's take a look at this video. My message uh, is so easy. Uh, I'm not uh, Dr. Evil. Not Dr. Evil, but this man, Alexander Yenov, has been charged and sanctioned by the US government for working with the FSB, Russian intelligence, to infiltrate American political movements. Yenov and his Russian government co-conspirators engaged in a malign influence campaign 
to sow discord, spread propaganda, and interfere in elections within the United States. The federal indictment describes what it only calls U.S. Political Group 1 as being co-opted by Ianoff. The description of the group leads to O'Malley Yeshatela. Are you an agent of Russia? Please. I mean, it's a really insulting question. Yeshatela is a lifelong activist and is the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. And now, in the eyes of the US government, he is an unindicted co-conspirator in a Russian plot to undermine American democracy. And they put a zip tie uh, on my wrist and um, they wanted me to sit on the curb. He has not been charged, but his home here in St. Louis was raided by the FBI in late July. Some people see it as a badge of honor to be attacked by the United States government when you're involved in the struggle for freedom. It's attacked every struggle for freedom. Mandela was a terrorist. Uh, Martin Luther King was spied on. The Justice Department alleges Yanoff funded a campaign run by Yishatela's group in 2016. I can't even entertain a discussion seriously about Russian interference or something. I'm an agent of Russia. I've been doing this all my life, and I've been doing it all my life because of America, not Russia. Before I ever met a Russian, this is what I was doing. Yishatela strongly denies taking instructions from Yanov. Yishatela did travel to Russia in 2015 for a gathering of separatist groups from around the world. That event was organized by Yanov's group, the Anti-Globalization Movement of Russia. The U.S. Justice Department says that group receives funds from the Russian government and is tied to the FSB, Russian intelligence. This is a bullshit. I'm sorry. I'm not the project FSB. I'm the activist. I'm the president of anti-globalization movement of Russia. We have the many members. Russia's alleged involvement with American activist groups is nothing new. Demonstrations by anti-nuclear groups have been intensifying. President Reagan has suggested that some of the demonstrations are encouraged, even supported, by the Soviet Union. From the Soviet era to today, in 2018, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation found that Russian trolls had been supporting groups on both sides of the U.S. political divide through social media. I'm 80 years old. I've lived in America all my life. I don't need any Russians to inform me of my conditions. And I'm the leader of a remarkable revolutionary organization that's intent on having freedom for my people. I don't need a Russian. And Donny O'Sullivan joins us now. Donny, what other political groups or movements have been targeted here? Yeah, well, what we've known down through the years, John, from what the DOJ and other U.S. agencies has dug up, is Russia likes to play both sides in the U.S. We've seen them, you know, in the run-up to the 2016 election here, playing the far right and the far left. Uh, in this instance, you saw them targeting a black liberation group there in St. Louis and in Florida. Uh, also, according to the indictment, uh, they say the Russians were promoting a California uh, succession movement, so a, a group that is promoted for California to lead the United States. Uh, it's all very much uh, typical of the Russian playbook. But as you can see there, it has real impact, real effect uh, in the United States. And, and to be clear, uh, you know, Homeland Security, FBI, everyone is warned that the Russians still do want to get involved in the systems here in the United States. Donny O'Sullivan, thank you so much for your reporting. Terrific analysis. Okay. So I saw that you had tweeted about this, Dr. CBS. And you kind of can't make this up, but what are your thoughts on this new story? Yeah, I'm just cackling at the man saying, thank you for that excellent analysis. That was basic bitchery, excuse my language, but it was the most superficial and non-insightful analysis. But anyway, so 
you know, I write about like the black scare and the red scare. And I feel like this is very much part of that formation because a lot of the red scare historically, a great deal of that energy has focused on foreign influence or outside influence or outside agitation, specifically on the Negroes, right? Specifically on, you know, there was a a, a deep concern about outside agitators or foreign influences, like riling up the Blacks and inciting them to revolution. And this, this is for a number of reasons. Number one is because Black citizenship has been questionable at best. The idea that because Black people are docile and childlike and outside of reason and rationality, they were unnecessarily susceptible to outside influence. And, you know, it's also comes to this kind of Southern idea that you know, the Blacks were happy with their lot. It was when the white carpetbaggers came and then later on, right, the Germans and then the Russians, the Cubans, all of these other outside groups are the ones that had to tell Black people that they were suffering, right? They are the ones that sort of implanted this false idea into the heads of Black folks that they were oppressed as if we didn't know. And so, you know, Yeshitela, he mentions this, right? He's like, I lived here all my life. I don't need any Russian to tell me about my conditions. And it's just, it's, it's very, very rich, right? Because as we know, the U.S. astroturfs all of these protests, all of these uprisings all over the world. They overthrow government after government. They cripple sovereign nations through sanctions and blockades. And so it's just asinine to make this accusation that, you know, in the year of our Lord, <laughs> 2022, that the Black folks, need the Russians. Now, whether or not they're receiving money is is inconsequential, right? This is like, the other thing that we need to think about is that this is an attack on internationalism, right? As internationalist solidarity has seen an uptick, whether it's around Palestine or Cuba or Venezuela, this is an attack on internationalism and making it seem like any sort of international solidarity or any any sort of international network that's critical of the United States is, is subversive, is a threat to national security. And this is ashy, musty, old, old analysis in like a new bottle. And so, you know, it's 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 very goofy. And you'll notice at the end at the end of the broadcast, the man asked, you know, what what other organizations have been targeted? And the, the answer is none, right? I think he said there was one some random separatist organization, but I think that what it's not insignificant that it was the black ass APSP that was targeted, right? And so this is why it's not only just McCarthyism, it's not only just the Red Scare, it's also the Black Scare, right? And that that is that both anti-radicalism and sort of anti-Black racial oppression are embedded in the United States such that these two are so often like thought together. It's like the double threat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. We don't hear this happening with DSA. Right. I mean, who knows? Like, it's too soon and that we know of, right? But certainly not the FBI raid. I mean, it's funny watching all the MAGA people freak out about the Trump FBI raid. It would be amazing if they also spoke out about this. But for some reason, I don't think they were that concerned. What's interesting, right, is that it's basically part of this rhetoric that actually many liberals partake in that the so-called far left, which APSP would be considered that because they're actually socialists. They're not this welfare capitalist, whatever, Right. Bernie people, no offense to the Bernie people. But anyway, so it's this idea that the far left and the far right are the same. And this is where this discourse, so we see this rise in discourse about authoritarianism, right? The idea of authoritarianism is a sort of offshoot of red fascism. This idea of red fascism that sort of arose in the 1930s after the so-called Stalin-Hitler pact. 
And the idea of red fascism is that the communists and the fascists are essentially the same. They're of the same character. The horseshoe theory. Exactly. And so this is more of the same because the FBI is attacking the so-called far left and the far right. In the mind of the average, ignorant, highly propagandized, illiterate American public, uh, U.S. public, these, these are one and the same. And so it's also doing that type of work as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And so much, we see that again and again. I mean, even with like the forward party, like Andrew Yang's party, their shtick is that like, we're not going to be the extremists of the Democrats or the Republicans. The idea that the Democrats are some left-wing equivalent of the Republicans, like as if they're as far from the center as the Republicans are, is just really dangerous and just shifts everything to the right. So speaking of state targeting of radicals, I wanted to ask you about Black August and what that was. Okay, so I'm just, I'm going to do a little bit of a lecturing. No, I'm kidding. So Black August is important because we're in the midst of it. And basically Black August emerged from something called the August 21 coalitions that were organized in the late 1970s, essentially in honor of the assassination of, of George Jackson in 1971. In 1979, a group of, of prisoners who were incarcerated in, um, I, I believe, San Quentin declared the month of August, Black August, as a tribute to George Jackson, his brother Jonathan Jackson, who was murdered on August 7, 1970, and to another freedom fighter called Jeffrey Katari Galden, who was killed in San Quentin on August 1st, 1978. And so effectively, Black August is an expression of solidarity with all Black political prisoners and prisoners of war. And it's a time of sacrifice and self-discipline. And so those who like incarcerated Black folks, they do things like fast from sunup to sundown. They refuse to listen to television or radio. They give up their canteen privileges and then they focus on intense political study. And so a quote from Omiya Abu-Jamal, he said, quote, August, a month of injustice and divine justice, of repression and righteous rebellion, of individual and collective efforts to free the slaves and break the chains that bind us, end quote. And so what I always want to point out is that Black August is not Juneteenth Part Two. It's not Radical Black History Month. It really is about political prisoners. And it really is about the cultivation of a particular type of practice that's rooted in study and discipline and sacrifice. And it's also important because political prisoners are at the center. And that, in turn, is important because these are often persons who are incarcerated are often those who we forget about. But they also are the people who are struggling against these extraordinarily repressive material conditions, right? And the forms of exploitation and domination that permeate U.S. society are very visceral and, and, and very stark in the prison system. And so Black August reminds us that, number one, political repression is ongoing, right? Number two, that these political prisoners and prisoners in general are not just, they're not the disposable people of society. They're not people that we can forget about or just legitimate their oppression, that these are these are thinking people, they create theory, they create art, they create knowledge, they're freedom fighters, and that their experience is as important as those of us who are free in their realities, right? And so one of the bad things about, I think, talking about Black August, and I, I see more and more people celebrating it, it is not something that's to be celebrated, it's to be commemorated, right? It's something that's commemorated. But the bad thing is that it's ultimately going to become another Juneteenth. So pretty soon we'll see, I don't know, plates and shit with jail bars on it. Like it's the unfreedom for me or whatever the fuck. I don't know. But like this becomes hugely problematic because the point is a call to action, right? It's a call to struggle. It's a means of 
moving toward like abolition of, of prison and policing, it's not yet another sort of Black thing to be co-opted and to be pimped by corporations. And so I just hope we keep that in mind. And can you just share with people a little bit about Mumi Abu-Jamal? I actually thought of asking about him because I heard you on a podcast. I don't remember which one. And at the end, they were like, okay, feel free to plug all your work and all your upcoming gigs. And you were like, I'm speaking here. This is what I'm working on. And free Mumi Abu-Jamal. <laughs> yeah. It's a good plug. Yeah, that was at, I feel like that was at the People's Summit. I just like took the mic and said, free Mumia. Now, Mumia Abu-Jamal, so he is somebody that was incarcerated for a number of reasons, but basic, but one of the reasons he was targeted was because of his um, advocacy for and support of the MOVE organization, which is another organization that was, that has been subjected to extreme police repression. Um, and, but Mumia, he was, uh, you know, a national journalist, radio and print that was receiving critical acclaim. Um, a former Black Panther, somebody who was doing um, and really important work in Philadelphia and as such was targeted by the police. And, and you know, and he has been sort of thrown under the jail. Luckily, he's been, his his death sentence was commuted. Um, commuted. But, you know, because he was accused of um, killing a cop, an interesting fun fact that I actually learned from an interview on Groundings that Dev did with um, Johanna Fernandez is that the, the phrase protect and serve that you see on cop cars all the time. Now that actually was a Black Panther. That was a Black Panther model, protect and serve. But the police expropriated that and made and sort of repurposed it to their ends, right? Because we know that the police neither protect nor serve. <laughs> they serve some things, but they don't serve what they claim to. Right, exactly. They don't serve the people. And so I think Mumia is important because he ha- he has an extraordinary body of scholarship that he produced while incarcerated. Um he still does, you know, his, his radio show. He's still very sort of active. Right. And, um, one of the most, he's just light. He reminds me of light. He's just light. And it's really amazing that somebody who's in those like very horrible, repressive, oppressive conditions, ha- it still radiates light and like hope and is still doing like work. You know, I'm like, I feel like I'm barely making it. I'm <laughs> always on the ledge every other day. And it's like this, but you know, Mumia's, his conditions are much worse than my own and it's still doing, um, it is still doing what needs to be done. And so like, I really, I very much admire him. I consider him one of the sort of great intellectuals and minds of our time and, you know, free Mumia and free them all. I've had Johanna on my show. She's great. I have to have her on again. She's great about the young Lord. She's written a book on the young Lords, which I highly recommend. So I want to get into, I guess, the theory because you're you're an activist or you're an organizer, right? I'm an academic who has recently joined an organization. Yes. <laughs> you're an academic, but you're an academic who's motivated, it seems like, by obviously you engage in scholarship and you're very rigorous and meticulous, but you also have a mission, right? Which I think some people consider to be some kind of problem. Like for me, it's with journalism and academia. It's like, obviously everyone has some kind of an agenda. So it's just a question of how honest you are about it. But what is the relationship for you between history and theory and philosophy on the one hand and organizing and activism on the other? You have to have some sort, you have to have some ideology or theory or philosophy of struggle, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, there there's this quote by Amilcar Cabral from The Weapon of Theory that everybody always quotes this, but he said, you know, every practice produces a theory and if it is true that a revolution can fail, even though it be based on perfectly conceived theories, 
Nobody has yet made a successful revolution without a revolutionary theory. And then elsewhere in there, he, he talks about, you know, he says the ideological deficiency, not to say the total lack of ideology within the national liberation movements, which is basically due to ignorance of the historical reality, which these movements claim to transform, constitutes one of the greatest weaknesses of our struggle against imperialism, if not the greatest weakness of all. And so, you know, you have to, there has to be some belief system that is guiding what you're doing. Otherwise, it is just, it's just movement, right? Otherwise, it's just directionless action. And so, for example, earlier, I talked about how sometimes the left and the right can seem like they believe the same things, but the so what and the method by which that thing is achieved is what is the basis of ideology and theory, right? So we are against, we being the Black left, are against the Democratic Party for very different reasons than the right is against the Democratic Party, right? And we know what that is. We, we know why it is that we're against them. And so that ought to dictate and determine the type of activities in which we engage, the type of institutions that we build, who we see as the revolutionary subjects. All of those things are rooted in theory and ideology. And the problem is that when you don't have a theoretical or ideological grounding, things that you might have the language, you know, you might have the aesthetics, but you don't have the politics. Right. You don't have any real commitment because you don't believe in anything. Right. It's all just performative. And so for me, I think that and then, of course, ideology or or theory to me is closely related to like ethics, how it is that we comport ourselves in our organizations, how we relate to ourselves and relate to others. And so I think that is why theory is so important. And theory has gotten kind of a bad name because of quote unquote academics. Now I say quote unquote academics because the problem with the social media culture is that anybody who uses big words or talks in fucking jargon is called an academic, even if they've never set foot on a college campus. That is rooted in some anti-intellectualism. It is true that academics are trash a lot, but every person that's trash (laughs) because of those things, because of that abstract language is not an academic. But I think that the other thing Cabral points out is the 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 um, weddedness of theory and action. You can't just be an armchair revolutionary and only theorize, but then you can't just be out there doing shit without any sort of foundational theory. And though that's what we call like praxis, right? And I think that that's what's what's really important. And so the problem is that we have a lot of doing like one or the other. And speaking of theory, I hope you don't get asked this question too much, and apologies if you do, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about CRT, critical race theory, and it's kind of this right-wing boogeyman that this guy, Chris Rufo, is really interested in getting out there. I was reading some tweets of his, and he's just very overt about it. He's like, we want to have make sure that people associate this in their heads with craziness. And he has a real ideologue. You know, he pretends that he's just observing this crazy woke world, but he is a total political agenda. But because the right is so good at framing things and because liberals and Democrats are such cowards, I feel like they're allowed to shape the narrative so that we're like, no, it's not critical race theory or critical race theory isn't bad. And most people have no idea what critical race theory is. So I want to know what it is and also what distinguishes your own framing because you don't use that framing, right? That framework. What is your leftist theory? What is your critical race theory? That's not critical race theory. Do you know what I mean? 
<laughs> my ideology. Yeah, so critical race theory came about, I want to say, in the late 1970s and sort of burgeoned in the 1980s as a response to critical legal studies, which was a sort of Marxist analysis of the law that was a challenge to like bourgeois liberal interpretations of the law. Some of the main people are, you know, Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, um, Kim Crenshaw is another one. Um, and basically, critical race theory was a way of critiquing how racism is fundamentally fundamentally embedded in U.S. law and jurisprudence. That's the point. That is what critical race theory, that was a sort of the reason it came about. And of course, it's expanded in different ways and it has incorporated a lot of sort of Black feminist thought and theory into it over time. There's nothing wrong with critical race theory, but critical race theory is not an internationalist, you know, it's not an internationalist approach. It's very much rooted in like the U.S. nation state. Um, some argue, I'm not going to get into it, but some argue that there's some anti-communism <laughs> embedded in it, um, whatever. Um, and so like, I don't think that I don't have a, you know, I ain't got no smoke for critical race theory. Um, but it's just one sort of approach among many. And this idea that any examination of, of race in, in U.S. history is critical race theory is ignorance, right? Or any idea that, so that and that is ignorance on the sort the so-called, you know, among the liberals, the left and the right, you know. And so when people are like, this is critical, critical race theory or whatever, well, no, it's not. And that's okay because critical race theory just is what it is. It's just one tool among many that people are using. I am trained in black studies, Af you know, African diaspora studies. Critical race theory is part of that. There are some people in black studies who do critical race theory, other of us do you know, what has been, you know, are part of like the so-called Black radical tradition or, you know, what I call the traditional radical Blackness, dialectical materialists, historical materialists. There's all of these different types of approaches to understanding the imperialism, colonialism, racism, capitalism, all of these things. And so when we, on the one hand, like doggedly defend or have tunnel vision in our defense of critical race theory, we're eschewing or ignoring all of these other ways that people have narrated their own realities historically and contemporarily. But then we're also letting the right set our agenda. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that that, that is what becomes extraordinarily problematic. I mean, we just live in a, a profoundly like reactionary society, you know, and there's this other idea that critical race theory is taught in K through 12. These people can barely, they can't even read. Okay. People are leaving K through 12. They cannot read. What makes you think they're being taught critical race theory? It's very goofy. And I think that what the focus on whether or not there's critical race theory in K through 12 does is it detracts from the huge issues that we have in our school system, which is not CRT. It is teacher shortages, massive defunding, charterization. The fact that 60% of Americans are functionally illiterate. That seems to me to be a problem with the K through 12 system. These are things that we need to focus on. And the CRT is just a huge red herring, you know, and we're falling for it. And we being people on the left and also, you know, liberals and et cetera. And so I just feel like we actually need to do what must be done and stop letting the right set the agenda as to what we care about and what we need to be doing. Yeah, well, I think we should just say it's too right wing, critical race theory. That should be our critique. We can bash it. It's too centrist. I think that what needs to be done is as these people are focusing on CRT, okay, do what needs to be done, organize around things that actually matter. Like, you know, if you want like COVID protection in your school, if you want a monkeypox plan in these K through 12 schools as this thing is taking off, like 
focus on those things, right? We have a finite amount of revolutionary energy. And arguing with Candace Owens' goofy ass is not a good use of our energy, I do not think. So, you know. By the way, let me just share what Chris Rufo, what his goal is in talking about CRT. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. If you want to see public policy outcomes, you have to run a public persuasion campaign. So that's what they're doing. Mm, okay. And I think that we, we can pay deep attention to what that campaign actually is without getting caught up in whether or not we should be teaching critical race theory. Our job is to see what's beneath that valence. So what the actual problem is, they don't want people learning about race, period. You know, they don't want they being... It's essentially, you know, these white parents don't want their children feeling badly in schools by learning about things like settler colonialism and racism, or it's attack on like gender and sexuality, like pronouns and that sort of thing. And so it's, it is a culture war and CRT has been used as a catch all for all of these things. And so I think that we should pay attention to what's being done because the attack on quote unquote CRT is being, it's effective, but I don't think that combating it means giving the true definition of CRT on the one hand or getting caught up in why CRT needs to be taught, right? It's basically to offer up what curriculum ought to be taught and what the uses are. And then also addressing the structural issues, not only in curriculum, but in the schooling in general. And so there is no critical race theory in our K through 12 education system because the critical part of critical race theory, critical thinking is one of the first things to fall out of the education system. You can have critical thinking without having so-called critical race theory as the framework. And that's really what the attack is. It's an attack on critical thinking, which is not reducible to so-called critical race theory or even in teaching about race in general. But race and sexuality are like the hotbed issues that allow for this attack to be successful. Someone wrote, CRT makes people feel ashamed of their race. No one should be shamed for their race. <laughs> Clearly, okay. This is goofy. See, I feel like I'm falling for it. I'm falling. This, this is the, I don't know if this is a right wing person. I have no idea who this person is, but okay. Listen, be as white as you want to be. That's great. I'm assuming that you're white because you're saying you're, you're, you're being shamed for, and I don't, and I don't think if it is that you're ashamed of your race because slavery happened, that says, <laughs> that says something about you, right? If you're ashamed of your race because of, you know, indigenous genocide, you might be missing the point of what it means to have an accurate understanding of history. If it's all about whether you feel ashamed or whether you feel proud or whether you feel whatever, like that's liberalism. You've missed the fucking point. So it becomes a thing about like individual guilt. I mean, it's not like when you study history, it should not be about and does not become about one person's personal journey. That shouldn't trigger when you learn about exploitation or oppression. Yeah, and it's also like, okay, if you feel ashamed, here's what I'll say. I remember during the slavery lesson, right? In like fifth grade, somebody like turning around and asking me, Sheree, are you, are you sad? Asking me, you know what I mean? And like, so I was ashamed too. So that feeling of like, I was ashamed because the way that it's taught, because who wants to be the descendants of slaves? You know what I mean? And I think that, any feelings of shame or guilt or confusion or whatever, first of all, that's just part of growing up. You're ashamed of many things growing up. And secondly, being taught history is not a fucking coming of age story. 
right? This is not your personal like memoir. It is what it is. And I think that you have to have basic analytical tools. You have to have a basic understanding of what's happening. Not only so we don't repeat it, because I don't, you know, as I say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, but simply to just, you know, I just don't see how we can be against wanting an accurate depiction. (laughs) I just, I don't understand what the, that's just really wild to me. But this is why USians are the most heavily propagandized people in the world, because myth has so long paraded as truth and as fact. It's goofy. And, you know, and people are entitled to their perspective. You could you could have whatever perspective that you want. But this is again, this is beyond just somebody's individual feeling or perspective. This is about how a whole generation of children are being taught or being miseducated. Right. To use the the term of Carter G. Woodson are being miseducated about the world are being miseducated about social relations. And I think that that's just hugely problematic. So what is your view? What is your ideology? Let's see. I am, I would say, I call myself a Rodneyist. That means that I am some combination of like, I'm a race woman, I'm Pan-Africanist, and I am a socialist. So my work tends to use a combination of dialectical materialism, historical materialism, political theory, critical political economy. Rodney as in Walter Rodney. Rodney as in Walter Rodney, yes. Who is a Guyanese historian, just for people who don't know. Guyanese historian, activist, academic, right? Exactly. Guyanese historian, organizer, world systems theorist. He was assassinated in 1980. And I say Rodney, so some people talk about like Black Marxism. There's this idea that Marxism is some white shit or scientific socialism is like European shit. And so it really just depends on your locus of enunciation, right? How it is that you're applying scientific socialism or dialectical materialism to a particular historical reality. And so I identify with Walter Rodney because for him, Guyana, the Caribbean, Africa, and the so-called Black world in particular was his locus of enunciation. It was how he applied those tools and that, that, that mode of analysis. And so I think that I tried to be internationalist in scope. I think that that's very, very important. One has to have a historical and an internationalist perspective. That doesn't mean that you don't deal with local issues. It just means that local issues are always happening in a global context, right? That the militarization of the police here is intimately bound up with the U.S. imperialist project abroad and vice versa. So the bifurcation of domestic and foreign policy doesn't actually exist. They're one and the same. So that, I think, is another thing that I sort of try to keep central in my own understanding of the world. And can you talk about Black Alliance for Peace and what you do with them? Yeah. So the Black Alliance for Peace, it's actually a unique organization because it's an alliance of organizations and it also has individual members. So I'm an individual member. I belong to no organization before I joined Black Alliance for Peace. But it, ba- it basically seeks to recapture and redevelop the historic anti-war, anti-imperialist, and pro-peace positions of like the long Black liberation movement. We do educational activities, organizing and movement support, our own sort of events. We put out press statements, releases, etc. in the service of opposing the militarized domestic state and the forms of repression emanating therefrom, as well as the policies of destabilization, subversion, and permanent war that the U.S. pushes globally through its agenda. So my particular, the Black Alliance for Peace um, at the national level, 
is made up of various teams. I am the co-coordinator of the research and political education team. So we do internal political education. We do external webinars. We provide support to the other teams when we put out our statements, do various kinds of research. As an organization, we do, you know, rallies and protests in our, at our different regional levels. We support our member organizations in their grassroots efforts. We do a lot. We're a very young organization, only five years old. Our national organizer is Ajamu Baraka, very renowned. <laughs> he ran for the Green Party vice presidency. So that's the Black Alliance for Peace. Importantly, we're a pan-Africanist and an internationalist organization. So it's only there's only like African descendants in our organization, but we also have a solidarity network, which other groups can join. So we've had on the show Jamima Pierre and Peter James Hudson, Margaret Kimberly, all great people involved in that organization. And talk more about, so you have this great book, by the way, Organize, Fight, Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writing. I feel like a lot of people, first of all, a lot of people don't know about communism internationally in the United States. Then people certainly don't know about Black communists and then certainly don't know about Black women communists. So why was it important for you to write this book? What inspired you to do it? Well, you know, so actually it's interesting the way that that particular book came out, which is it is a collection of primary writings by Black communists, we call like communist adjacent women. So women who were not necessarily members of the Communist Party, but who are around it. And the way that that came about was Jody Dean, who's the co-editor, she emailed me because one of her students was writing about Louise Thompson Patterson and was looking for a particular piece that was cited in like a secondary work. And it was really hard to find. I happened, I was actually at the archives at that time in the CPUSA papers. And so I think I was able to send it to her, but part of what we wanted to do was to collect in like a single volume, some of these types of writings because there none exists to date. And, you know, part of what can happen is that when black communist women are talked about, first of all, beyond like Claudia Jones, she's probably the most famous one, but I'll just take her for example. What can happen is that she studied as like a feminist or a proto-feminist but then her communism is sort of sidelined or the fact that she's a Marxist or an internationalist or an anti-imperialist becomes subsumed under the fact that she is a feminist. And so, okay, so she theorized something called triple oppression. She wasn't the first, but she's somebody that popularized it specifically in this writing call and into the neglect of the problem of the Negro woman. Which you don't include because it's so relatively well-known as opposed to her other writings, right? Exactly. And so... What people say is like, oh, look, intersectionality. And so what can happen is that because people know so little about Black women as intellectuals and as theorists in general, all of them can be subsumed into some Black women's intellectual tradition as if there are not deep political differences, as if, you know, there aren't disagreements, discrepancies, et cetera. And so part of what we want to do is map out a Black women's socialist, anti-imperialist, like genealogy and intellectual not even intellectual tradition, but that these women, they were at the forefront of theorizing, like, how are we going to get out of this capitalist imperialist reality? And they took for granted that sexism and racism were an impediment to those broader struggles, but they were first and foremost anti-imperialist and socialist, right? And I think that that's something that we want to impress. So our book covers the period 1919 to 1956, there's much more work to be done about Black communists and socialist women after that fact. But that's the time period that we cover. And so it's also an offering, right, or an invitation for more work to be done on this type of theorizing that was happening. So 
it's really important. And it also offers a challenge to this idea that, again, like communism or Marxism is like this white people shit. Black people were either dupes. If they were involved, they were dupes of Moscow or they got hustled by the white folks. But what this shows, you know, they're doing a lot of grassroots organizing and they're driving a lot of the theory of the party. So it's important for a number of reasons. Can you talk more about the tradition of Black communism in the United States and how it was treated? Yeah, so I mean, I study the Communist Party of the CPUSA, which is not the only sort of socialist tradition. There are others, but this book is focused on that particular formation. What's important to note is that Black people were struggling all the time in that organization, but they still believed in the organization because of its internationalist connections and scope, because it was one of the first anti-racist interracial organizations. And so they were modeling like affirmative action before it was affirmative action. And people called this opportunism or duping or whatever. But at times when labor unions were segregated, when even organizations that ostensibly dealt with the race problem were segregated, had Jim Crow shops, all of these sorts of things, the CPUSA was pushing back against that. even. In the South, right, even as in the 1920s and 1930s, when they began to work earnestly in in the South, the CPUSA was doing that work. But that's not to say that it was all like roses in the party, like part of what the theory shows. So if you take, for example, an end to the neglect of the problems of the Negro woman, obviously what she's saying is that y'all are neglecting the problems of Black women. (laughs) Like, hello, and and we are weakening the anti-imperialist struggle if that persists. And so part of these writings are expanding who counts as a worker and what are the sites of struggle that need to be engaged. And they're talking about all sorts of things, right? They're talking about, these women are talking about labor organizing. They're talking about domestic workers. Up to like 1965, the majority of domestic workers were Black women. And that was the primary form of work that they could get. And so they're like, hey, if we leave out domestic workers who are subjected to some of the most oppressive forms of labor, then we're leaving out a crucial segment of the workforce, right? They're talking about mothers, right? The role of mothers in, you know, protecting their sons and and their children from being sent off to war. They're talking about how you go about organizing people who are not on the factory floor. So there's just all kinds of, they're thinking about labor. They're thinking about how to end capitalism. They're thinking about issues of solidarity and organizing but just with Black people generally and Black women particularly at the center of that analysis. And it's not in the way that it tends to happen now where it's like, if you're not a Black woman, you just got to sit down and shut the fuck up. You can't say anything. And, (laughs) you know, it's kind of like it becomes like a roast. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that for unity to be possible, for, for this collective struggle to be possible, we cannot forget and we cannot marginalize these groups that are super exploited, right? So, yeah. I'm not sure everyone knows about the work that the CPUSA was doing, like the Scottsboro Boys or anti-lynching. Can you just provide a little bit of background on that? Yeah, so some of the big cases that the CPUSA worked on, one was Tom Mooney, one was the Scottsboro Boys, one was Angelo Herndon. There was a lot of them. One was Rosalie Ingram, Willie McGee, And then free Angela Davis. So everybody knows about Angela Davis, but it's the Communist Party that was organizing on the ground and internationalizing her case. And so that links back to the Scottsboro case because what the Communist Party did was wage a mass-based 
struggle for the Scottsboro Boys' freedom. So what the NAACP was doing was waging the legal battle. So was so was the Communist Party through the International Labor Defense. But they what they understood fundamentally was that you have to have the people have to be behind this case. The people have to understand that what they're being subjected to is capitalist injustice as well as racist injustice and internationalizing, that is to say, expanding the cartography of struggle is super important. And they did this again and again with Rosalie Ingram, with Reese Taylor, who was a woman that was gang raped. They organized to bring her case to the United Nations. It happened with Willie McGee and all of these other cases. They understood that you have to wage a grassroots struggle. During the Great Depression, they're organizing tenants councils and unemployed councils so that people who are being evicted or people who are unemployed but struggling for unemployment benefits had a sort of mass base and a sort of venue through which to organize. So there was a lot of issues with the with the Communist Party. There was, you know, and there's the, the scholarship is abundant. One book that people might read is Hammer and Ho, because I think that Hammer and Ho covers both the successes but also some of the deep issues and contradictions within the Communist Party itself. So that's a book that I, um, by Robin, Robin D.G. Kelly. So, but I think the question that's important to think about is like, why is it that a small but not insignificant population or cadre of Black people saw value and saw sort of the necessity of not only this Communist Party, but also having a particular allegiance or not, not even allegiance, but having solidarity with the Soviet Union. Because allegiance makes it seem, it, it, that can kind of traffic in this like subversion, like whatever infiltrator narrative. Gerald Horn's work is really, really important here because he shows that Black people have always organized internationally, which makes sense if you are part of a nation that says you are not a citizen and you're part of a nation that is subjecting you to genocide. As the Civil Rights Congress, which had many communist members, you know, they filed this document with the United Nations in 1951, we charged genocide. but. Anyway, I can ramble on and on and on, but I think, you know, I think that we have to take seriously why it is that Black people and Black women found a home in the Communist Party and in the Communist struggle, even as there were many contradictions. What was your own political evolution like? I'm just, a, you know, people ask me this all the time. I'm not from a movement family. I, I only recently joined an organization, so mine was through study and through books. It's funny because I started off a lot of Black intellectuals or academics kind of have this trajectory, but I started in my like Afrocentric <laughs> stage, you know, where I was super into like John Henry Clark and some Maleficente, but mostly, you know, I was reading Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, all the classics, you know, that was, I went natural for the first time with my hair. You know, you go through kind of like the white purge where, you know, <laughs> you, you know, you distance yourself from like whiteness to, to develop a particular type of consciousness. And then I sort of moved through as I got into graduate school, I initially was going to be a development economist. Like I was studying development and development theory. And so that's when I got into like Marxist political economy, especially through like the plantation school and Caribbean Marxists, et cetera, et cetera. And then the more I got into Marxism, especially as articulated by Black folks, it just, the analysis made sense. The view of the world made sense, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to sort of 2020, it just felt like it was time to join an organization. I never had any negative perceptions about organizing and, and being in an organization. I just was always like an academic, like I study. But I think that it just came a point where it's like, okay, there's like work to be done, even by academics, right? There's a way to do work like on the ground as part of an organization in a way that's not just like parachuting in, imposing one's sort of views. And I think it's important to be in solidarity and to have responsibility to an organization and to struggle in an organization. And so, yeah, that's in a nutshell. 
Are you ever afraid that it's going to like interfere with your professional academic career? I mean, it already has, but like I, you know, I told myself that I was going to get as far as I got in the academy, just kind of like being myself. And it's not just my politics. It's also like my disposition that, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's not, you know, I am who I am and I show up the same everywhere and that's not always, um, accepted, but like, you know, so, so I think, um, I just try to, you know, have my shit together. I, I publish a lot. I do what I do with my work. I do what needs to be done. And in some ways that has sort of protected me in other ways it hasn't. So, um, but the work, the struggle will outlast the university. And the university, as Walter Rodney talks about, the university is an important side of struggle, right? He talks about being a guerrilla intellectual and waging struggle where you are. And we can't necessarily see the university and the resources and the access that comes with the university to like the reactionaries and the, and the neoliberals. We have to work to democratize resources and redistribute re- resources to the best of our ability um, while we're, you know, we remain committed to, to um, committing class suicide. I know you're a big fan, you and Gerald Horn, who's also graced this show on many occasions. You guys are mutual fans. Anyone else that you want to shout out whose scholarship or organizing has inspired you? Erica Kane is amazing. She is somebody who people try to malign as an academic. Is not an academic, but is just smarter than everyone. So people <laughs> so people like condemn her as an academic because she uses particular language. But so she's awesome. Um, and I can't I can't remember if it was her, Jamila Pierre, that recruited me into the Black Alliance for Peace. And of course, Jamie Man Peters' work with the Black Agenda Review and the Black Agenda Report, as well as their academic scholarship, is really important. One of my dear friends, Sandy Blasido, she's writing a book right now on Ana Livia Cordero, who is an important Puerto Rican doctor and revolutionary. She was Du Bois's doctor in Ghana for a time. She was married to Julian Mayfield, um, Ana Livia Cordero, that is. And so there's just so many people. I know I'm forgetting, you know, of course, like Reed Hood Communist, for sure. I like Hood Communist. Um, read the Black Agenda Report. Read the the sort of, what are they, like the press releases, I guess. The statements of the Black Alliance for Peace, those are all very, very, very important venues. And then in terms of academics, just, you know, read the footnotes. <laughs> Some of the analysis is good, but I just kind of, you know, Young Jeezy, ha- Young Jeezy, a rapper, <laughs> I think I'm showing my age and my color. Young Jeezy has a song where he's like, ha ha, I'd rather listen to your instrumentals. That's how I feel about a lot of new scholarship. It's like, I don't care about any of the lyrics or any of the analysis. I just look at the footnotes to see, you know, the primary documents. But but there are some good people, you know, there's, you know, I just, Gerald, Barbara Ransby's cool, you know, I'll rock with her. <laughs> Robin Kelly, I like it. Jamima and Peter. At the beginning of the show, we talked about this, this censorship around Ukraine. And if you say anything that's at all critical of a certain narrative, you're a Putinist or like CBS had to take down their story. But I've heard you speak about NATO and about the war. Could you just share some of your insights into that? Not to sound like Amy Goodman, but can you just give your view of this conflict? Because it's very rare to hear anyone say anything smart on this. My view of the conflict is that we have to keep our eyes on NATO. Our analysis, the position that we take at Black Alliance for Peace is that we are against the U.S., NATO, European axis of domination. You have to look at the sort of correlation of forces that led to this conflict and not start in February of 2022. That is not where things started. 
And we've put out many positions or we've put out several positions on Ukraine. But I think that so many so-called leftists are basically just putting out, you know, the, the State Department line on this conflict. And I think that we are against war, which means that we are against warmongering. We are against militarism as the primary means of diplomacy. We are against sanctions. We're against astroturfing. We're against forms of low-intensity warfare. We're against the militarization of aid. All of those things are important. And all of those things need to be taken into account in terms of understanding this conflict. You have to read beyond the mainstream media. Because if all you read is the mainstream media, all you'll see is Putin's invasion of Ukraine or the Russian invasion of Ukraine or Putin's tax hike or Putin's inflation. Like, it's goofy. And so I think that we have to be critical, right? Not critical race theorists, but we have to be critical in our analysis. So that's what I'll say. Like, look at, like, on the, on the Black Philanthropies website, if you go under resources, we have our Ukraine tab. That's how I feel about the situation. Last thing I want to ask you about is AFRICOM. Can you tell people what AFRICOM is? Something I think a lot of people have no idea what it is. So let me just say, so there's seven geographical commands and AFRICOM is one of them. So there's 11, there's 11 unified combatant command systems, seven of which are geographical. There's AFRICOM, the U.S. Central Command or CENTCOM. There's the U.S. European Command, which is UCOM. There's the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, which is Indo-PACOM. There's the U.S. Northern Command, which is North, the Southern Command with the SouthCOM. And then, <laughs> wait for it, Space Command. Just Spacecom. So that's like, you know, our Star Worship. Anyway, so, okay. It's important to point those out because that means that the United States has divided the world into military command structures. And it's 800 bases pepper these command structures. Now, I and I mentioned the other um, commands because AFRICOM is actually a direct result of NATO via the European command because the European command is a part of NATO and the European Command initially had responsibility over African states. So it was in 2007 that this commander named James L. Jones proposed the creation of AFRICOM. So under George W. Bush, the formation of AFRICOM was announced. It was launched in 2008 under Obama. But then it was after the invasion of Libya in 2011. African support went from extremely, extremely like critical to very supportive. And so the point of AFRICOM is quote, sustaining security engagement through military-to-military programs, military-sponsored activities, and other military operations as directed to promote a stable and secure African environment in support of U.S. foreign policy. For example, you guys remember a couple of months ago when Moroccan and Spanish forces massacred at least 34 people in the Malia massacre, right? Those Moroccan forces were trained by U.S. through the military-to-military AFRICOM apparatus. And that's important to note because this is the type of militarization of aid and the sort of emphasis on security that permeates these command structures, not least AFRICOM. And so basically, there are 46 various forms of U.S. bases, as well as military-to-military relations between 53 out of the 54 African countries the one exception being Eritrea. They don't have any AFRICOM or any, any sort of military, any, any of that um, relationship. And so there's a whole bunch that one can say about it, but the presence of AFRICOM on the African continent, coupled with, I don't know if you all remember a couple of months ago, the U.S. sort of condemned the ways that 
many African nations were sort of staying out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, right? They were sort of, you know, not taking a strong position. This was especially uh, manifested in April when um, the U.S. General Assembly voted to suspend Russia's membership and only 10 out of the 54 African countries voted in favor, nine opposed and 35 abstained. And so this is important because the other reason for the presence of AFRICOM as is the case in classical colonialism, is to thwart off other competitors. So it's, it has a lot to do with China and it has a lot to do with Russia. And so it has to do with sort of having a monopoly on particular natural resources, especially those that are strategic for weapons, right? And so it's a, it's, it's a neo-colonial structure that pushes militarism as the primary means of international engagement. And it also pushes all manner of weapons throughout the African continent arms these governments against civilians, against civil society who might protest the presence of these military bases or U.S. special forces and et cetera. And so it's a recipe for disaster and it's a form of propaganda because if you have a highly militarized situation and if you have all of these military bases, what you're basically saying is that war is inevitable. Whereas if you forefront things like actual economic development, actual diplomacy, one is more apt to engage internationally in those ways. And so AFRICOM is terrible, you know, and and Africa is only going to become more strategically important in the years to come. And so we can assume the U.S. is going to try and impose more and more of a military presence there. And that bodes well for no one, especially the African population. Well, thank you. Where can people find you? What are you working on next? I can be found. So I, my website is drdr-cbs.com. I'm working on my first book project, Black Scare, Red Scare, should be out sometime. Who knows? Sometime next year. My second book project is on mutual comradeship. So a form of ethical and political engagement. Our book, Organized Fight Win, drops on October 4th. So I hope everybody will pre-order and grab you a copy. It's going to be amazing. Um, It's a great teaching text. It's a great text that you can use for political education. So hopefully everybody will grab that. We also have an edited volume, myself, Erin Kamugisha, and Percy Henson, dropping in December called Reproducing Domination. That is a collection of Percy Henson's writing on post-colonial Anglophone Caribbean. So check it out. I have a blog. LDI blog. So anyway. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman, and our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.